Sparks and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. All right, it's Tuesday. Sandos and the Sidekick, a little pep in my step, ETSU men's basketball. Finally, with a win, ETSU women's basketball, we get to talk about it, but they had a win last week. Uh, and we'll talk about their weekend, their last three, four games as well. We'll obviously not yada yada everything about men's basketball. We'll talk about men's basketball, women's basketball, and what everyone loves to hear. Mike Gallagher's take on the Southern Conference. There's lots of notes from the SoCon this past week. Sometimes we come on and we, I think last time we went through the entire league because we hadn't talked about it in a while. But usually we come on and have like four or five things for you, you know, big headlines. In fact, I think I have a bumper for... uh, I'm sure you do. Yeah, well, you know me. I think I have a bumper for the SoCon segment now, at least this version of it. Um, And there's lots of stuff to get to. So I'm really excited for that 20 or 30 or 40 minutes, however long it takes. It generally does take us quite the amount of time to get to. Yep, well, and it is, it is one of our favorite parts because we like talking and covering the league as yeah. well. Football, basketball, whatever, we really like talking the league. We watch, we pay attention. We know other people in the league, whether they agree or disagree with us, mainly disagree, I would assume. But for the most part, I think they like to hear somebody else's take of it. And I've heard from different fan bases that we haven't done it enough uh, this year during basketball. And uh, we'll, we'll, I, once a week, I don't know that we did it more than once a week looking back at it, but I just feel like maybe because other teams have been better uh, in the standings at EDSU, they want to hear more of it uh, than uh, what they've heard in the past, and certainly the Furman fans, and I'm not even taking a shot at them because of the game last night, but they were on a roll where they had just an unprecedented, like, five wins in a row by an average of 25 points or more, just something crazy that honestly, and I said it before, I'll say it again, I don't know that you can find any stretch of any dominant team in any league, including Gonzaga and the West Coast, where they were so more dominant than the rest of the league for so many years that they won five in a row by average of that much. And you could say, okay, Power Five, there's a little more money involved, this, that, and other. But even so, at a mid-major level, I just don't know that I saw a stretch like that from the Furman Paladins. So I know the Furman fans were happy. I know they probably were going to be more happy if it ended a little differently to, to hear the first part of this segment, but it was about like an ETSU Furman get Both Furman and ETSU games played out about like they have over the history since ETSU's rejoined the SOCOM. ETSU plays tight down there, Furman wins, or the rare uh, off chance that Furman throttles ETSU, or yeah, Furman throttles ETSU down there, ETSU has always returned the favor back at their place. But when it's been tight, down in Timmins Arena, it seems to always be tight in Freedom Hall, and it was exactly that. It was two different halves, and I guess maybe to Bob Ritchie's credit, when they shot at the goal that uh, didn't need to be adjusted, both teams were lights out. Can I quickly just get back to something that you mentioned? You feel like you've got a little pep in your step. I'm listening to you in these first couple minutes of the show. I haven't heard this Jay Sandoz in quite some time. Like, it is truly, and I wonder if people agree with me or not. Maybe it's my imagination. I hear you talk every day. I hear you on sales on the side. Yeah, people listen to the show every episode. I hear a different version of you. I have not heard this much life coming from your vocal cords outside of when you screamed at the officials pretty much all the second half yesterday on the air. I have not heard this version of you on Sandus and the Sidekick pretty much at all in this new year. There was one. There was one. It wasn't the whole game. Uh, there was one instance. I was about to go cut out maybe three all right, there was or four two, okay, okay, there was two. One, the, the, the replay review I thought was ridiculous. I don't know what they were reviewing. Unless somebody pointed out after the game, maybe the shot bounced on the line, but when Alex Hunter went to save a ball out of bounds and threw it off his own guy. I was confused on why they were replaying it. And then the referee only said to me when he walked by was, we're seeing the tight bounds on Furman. And my, that was what got me yelling because I was like, a Furman guy threw it to a Furman guy. Who else would have been out of bounds on? So now if he would have said we're looking to see if the shot landed on the line or was it off Furman, then okay. But he just said we're looking to see um, if it was off Furman or whatever. I'm like, well, yeah, there's only two Furman guys there. Then the non-technical foul. I will. Get, I I have. Well, I, let's, oh, okay. let's just skip ahead. Well, you got I me want, all fired up. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking I, about. I want to okay. talk about right. those things. Like, let's start right, where I'm you want back. to start because I think everybody that listened to the game knows how it went, right? Listen, watch the game. Like, ETSU was up 18. That was a 13-point lead at the half. And then eight and a half minutes later, it was tied. And then it was game on, right? And you confided in me and said, not only did you – yell on air at the refs. You then muted yourself and yelled at them off air as well. Flip your headset up and we're like, hey, what's going on here? You can't do this or this or this. And it was like the last two or three minutes were just insane with so many twists and turns. Three things stand out to me. 
the two charge calls, and the timeout versus travel. Those are my three moments of the last three minutes. So, okay, yes, and, and I, I think that's it. I think I went this morning to watch sort of that end stretch because I wanted, I. I wanted to see in the heat of the moment, which happens, what did I miss? Because there inevitably always is something I miss. Well, in, in the heat of the moment, emotions can get the better of some people. Oh, you got to be kidding me. We understand that. <laughs> so that being said, I went back and watched. Now, the first thing I wanted to go watch was what set Bob Ritchie off. And I'm not talking about the backboard before the game. I'm talking about Slauson drives to the hoop. And it was a challenge by Ladarius Brewer. And Ritchie runs three steps on the floor which generally is a technical foul, and I was not mad at that. I was not mad, and I did not call for a technical foul for Coach Ritchie because I think you should allow an initial reaction from most people within reason. Now, I thought Ritchie was far out on the floor, but that didn't get me fired up. I didn't say, you know, absolutely Bob should be teed up. This is ridiculous. This is the charge block, this is the, right? this is the No, this is not charge block. Okay. This is the – um, Slauson goes to the rim for a hard two-hand layup. Ladarius Brewer jumps up in the verticality. Now, uh, yes, he, yes, here, yes. I've talked about this before. Kennard Getchton Gilliard, KGG, was the best at this. He would jump and go backwards and stay in his verticality. Ladarius Brewer jumped and gave ground. Slauson, going forward, ran into him and was able to continue his momentum. That is not a foul. I've talked to every official coordinator I've ever been allowed to have access to. There are plays I could cut. So I went to that play to specifically see that one that set Bob off. That one, the referees, whether they like it or firm, and if, he, if this would have went against ETSU, I would be defending this call because I've met with the head of officials on different levels and different conferences and asked them the same question. They've given me the same answer every time. So I believe that was officiated correctly. Now, there were many other things that I don't think were officiated correctly that did go Against a couple went against ETSU, and I found three I thought went against Furman that were quite atrocious. And I'm being fair here. There were there were calls in that game that were inexplainable for both teams. And on air, I I think I tried to do justice. The block charge call I thought was egregious because Bob Ritchie asked for a timeout. He can't call a timeout, so he's trying to get Alex Hunter's attention. This is this is what happened. The ETSU fans should know this rule very well because an ETSU Timeout was granted by a coach when it wasn't allowed to be timeout. It cost him a game against Chattanooga. This was officiated correctly that Bob Ritchie couldn't call timeout, but Alex Hunter turns and asks for a timeout about the time that the block charge happens with Slauson into Seymour. Three referees blow a whistle. Two have a foul. Two are pointing charge. One blew the whistle, I think, to grant the timeout. And the timeout was pulled back and wilted and they allow the charge to happen. And Bob Ritchie griped, and I defended his gripe on air because I felt like he had a decent gripe of, I, you know, I'm trying to call timeout. You know I'm trying to call timeout. When my player turns to call timeout, you should know he's calling timeout. Why are you waiting to blow the whistle? And then you get the charge. I thought there were two times um, Furman had rebounds and then got kind of spun to the ground that probably in other games would be fouls that weren't called fouls that I thought ETSU got the breaks in that call. The one call that got me absolutely incredulous and yelling at everybody, and I watched the tape again to make sure I didn't just missee it. The foul's not on Slauson, but Slauson grabs the ball, and he goes to just power dribble with two hands and catch it. The problem is when he went for the big power dribble, it shot off his right toe, (laughs) shot 25 feet in the air above the referee and landed in the scores table. In every basketball game of any level, I was just recently in an NBA game. That's a technical foul. Okay. I was at my kid's game. But that's a technical foul. But if there's no intent and it's an accident that the foot's right there and then it rockets up and the referee sees him go to do the power dribble and says, oh, he was just trying to do that and it's a mistake, then do you say no tech? I think you are giving the referee a lot of credit. I think yeah, – Southern I think they didn't see it. I think it popped in the air and then when it landed – Watching the replay, none of the guys, I think, saw the ball until it landed, and then they all – and Slauson did what anybody should do. I didn't, hey, whoa, 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 I didn't mean to do that. I'm not mad. I think you're allowed to give an initial reaction. I think Slauson's power dribble is fine. When the ball goes up in the air 25 feet, whether you meant for it to happen or not, you have shown up 
the referees, which is generally you cannot let that act, intentional or non-intentional, go without some sort of reprimand. And I would say, again, I would say this. I said this when David Burrell got teed up in the Southern Conference Tournament. There was a foul called. Burrell took three extra dribbles and did a windmill dunk. He got teed up. Absolutely, he should. Why are you taking three extra dribbles after you were called for a foul? You take the ball from the opposing team. You take three dribbles. You dunk it. You showed up everybody. You deserve to get a technical foul. I am not one to hand out technical fouls to hand out technical fouls, but there are three times I've taken my headset off. Twice because a guy has bounced the ball up in the air, 25 feet, not called. The other one, I think it was Jacksonville when Murray Bartow and the A-Sun, where a guy actually threw the ball off the backboard and went to midcourt, and that wasn't teed up. And I'm like, what are we doing? Like, those are the th- those that are so egregious that, I mean, this was on national TV. There wasn't one person watching national TV that Furman and ETSU take the dog out of the fight there that isn't looking at it going, let's get a technical foul. Like, if you look at it, and I think that is – now. I don't think that affected anything. I don't think, again, I don't think the intent, and I agree, like, if you could go with somebody's intent, but at the same token, you know, if you go to, you know, if you want to throw, uh, let's say you're a baseball player and you put the, your left, you know, your gloves in your left hand, you take out your right, and you kind of just kind of do a throwing motion, but it's still in your hand, that's fine. But if it leaves your hand and spikes off the turf, you didn't mean to throw it, you're still probably going to get chunked from the game. Some sort of reprimand. So, Yes, I agree. I don't think Slauson was intentionally trying to slam the ball 25 feet. And watching it, you, he hits his toe. I mean, there's no doubt that he's just trying to slam the ball in frustration and catch it. But when it doesn't go your way, I don't think you should be given the right. So that got me fired up. Uh, but I, that being said, Furman has legitimate gripes in this so game, So the two block charges late, I think both were on Slauson, I thought were both bad calls. And they were both called charges. I thought Ty Brewer, smartly so, flopped on one of them. And that was, I was that the back down? Yes. That's atrocious. Terrible. That's atrocious. Uh, the Jaden Seymour one at the right elbow, um, a little more 50-50 to me, but I thought that was also a bad call. And then I thought the worst call, and Mid-Major Madness tweeted this too, I thought the worst call was the timeout for his travel for Garrett Heen after the offensive rebound. Uh, off the, I believe it was the Slauson miss. The wide open three. Goodness, was he so wide open. I mean, there was nobody within 20 feet of him. And it rimmed out, gets the rebound. He's, like, backpedaling down to the floor, got knocked off balance. And it looks like right as he's about to lose his balance, he calls timeout with the ball in his possession. And no timeouts granted, they call a travel. I thought that was bad. Now, all that to be said. and Can I counter that real quick? Sure. Okay. So the referees are not allowed, I believe, to sit. So you can't jump out of bounds and call a timeout anymore. If a guy's going to the ground, I think they're not allowed to save you. Point being, though, I thought he was fouled. Okay. So, well, that, right, so, sure. so, so to – We're getting to the same point. Right, right. I think Furman still should have had the ball. I think it should have been a foul instead of the timeout grant. I think they didn't give the timeout because I don't think they're allowed to make the save. I would argue he was still on his feet when he called the timeout. Oh, then, that, then, but, then that's fair. But See, that's fair. it was more bang-bang if that is the rule. And if that is the rule, that's really interesting. I did not know that. Um all that said, I think those three went against Furman late. But there were a lot of calls earlier in the game, and some of them much earlier, uh, others just preceding this sequence, where I thought ETS, you've got the short end of the stick. It was bad both ways. So I, I think. Shocking for a Southern Conference. Slauson, the play after he slammed the ball and didn't get the tee was a block charge, do you think? Yes. He got the charge because yes. they didn't give him the yes. technical. See, I, 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 I said, said that. that I did. I, I said that. So, again, I think I've watched enough Southern Conference basketball. The first thing I would say is they had three young up-and-coming referees in it. It's a Monday night ESPNU game. There's only like 30 games out there. No offense to the three officials that worked it, but the whole reason they play on Monday and Wednesdays is to get top-end officials. And they had three young guys who tried to manage the game and – there were calls both ways. And if you've paid attention to ETSU basketball and your Furman fan listening to this and you're screaming at Furman only had single-digit free throws. ETSU had four or five games in a row where they had single-digit free throws and everybody else shot 20. So at some point in time, it worked ETSU's favor. ETSU fans are going to look at you and go, Furman, we've been there. We've complained about the same thing. We couldn't get calls on the road to get to double-digit free throws. We feel your pain there. 
but we're not going to feel sorry for you when it finally went ETSU's way and they got 23,000 somebody. Does it make it right? No, but it's just the way it is. And, unfortunately, when you're at home, you get the crowd going. The crowd was as ruckus as, uh, to quote with Arius Brewer, as ruckus as pre-COVID. And the referees sometimes at home, when the crowd gets going, they give you calls. I don't think there's there's any doubt about that. But I thought it was still an excellent played basketball game. I think certainly we have openly said on this podcast, I said on air, there were calls that, you know, were missed both ways. I can make a case for trying to find the play on the verticality with Slauson driving and hooping Ladarius Brewer. I found plays that went against Furman and then trying to remember during the game that I defended Furman on some things. On the same token, I certainly defend ETSU and some of the things that they got. Now, I've never sat here when ETSU shot single digits and complained that that's the reason why they've lost the game. And I'm not sitting here saying Furman, I think, should sit there and go, well, we only shot nine free throws or whatever it was. That That's the reason why we lost the game. There are a lot of – Furman shot 61% in the second half, and they went five minutes without a point. To me, that's on Furman. You shot lights out and then couldn't score. Similar to ETSU, pretty lights out down in Timmins until, what, the last three minutes? Right. And they didn't score. wasn't because, you know, Ladarius Brewer did or didn't step out of bounds or they thought they got fouled in the middle of the paint, which I thought they did. That didn't do it, neither one of those. ETSU went scoreless. Furman, I think, gripe should be they went five and a half minutes without scoring a point, and that's what cost them the game. Incredible how similar those last, you know, six, seven minutes of the games were. It was tied at 68 at the under four yesterday. It was tied at 69 at the three-minute mark at Timmins Arena earlier this year, and then you had one team semi-pull away. It was quite astonishing looking at the similarities of the games. I think I have a similar take on why Furman didn't win the game. Mine is just, quite simply, they just didn't shoot the ball well enough in the first half. And do I think it's funny that they happen to be shooting on the goal that Bob Ritchie was complaining about in that first half and that they took, it seemed like, a good hour, maybe even longer, to try and fix pregame? Do I think it's funny that that's the goal that they didn't shoot well on? I'm not going to lie. That is pretty funny to me. I mean, it seems like instant karma, right? And I know that from ATSU's side, there are a number of people at the arena that were very, very, very upset about this in general. Am I one of those that was upset at the time? No, but I think that it is pretty hilarious that that is what got them so far behind and ultimately proved to be, now they didn't do what most teams do. They didn't get to within two or three, or they didn't get to a tie and could never get over the hump. They led a couple of times down the stretch. And they actually got into the lead instead of being able to get right to the precipice and not being able to cross it. Uh, But at some point, when you shoot that incredibly, as Furman did at the outset of the second half, the well is going to run dry. You have to play. There's a reason the game's 40 minutes long. You have to play better than they did in the opening, let's say, 17 minutes because some shots started to go down there at the end of the first half. And playing how they did the first 12, 13, 14 minutes of the second half is not sustainable. They just did not play good enough throughout the game. They played great enough in stretches, but then miserable in others. And that's why I think that they ultimately couldn't get they had 11 first-half field goals. They had 11 second-half field goals with 9.30 to go in the second half. They had I was it five threes in a row at some point. I mean, it was in, it was a display. Now, they're the best shooting, three-point shooting team in America as far as made baskets go, and it showed because they got on a roll. I thought, and let's think about this, Slauson had a chance to tie the game with the three top of the key with a minute to go with nobody around. You could not have a better look. And I'm certainly not taking a shot at Slauson because I thought he competed all game long. It just didn't go down. And it hit, and it bounced on the rim, and I think it just kind of trickled off the right side. But it, it – and that may have been the Heen rebound, actually. It was. Right? Seconds left, yeah. So, um, it was a clean – I mean, for Furman, you couldn't want – and honestly, the way he had played, he might have been the guy you wanted taking the shot. I mean, he didn't have a – Bad day shooting, right? Seven. Well, it was one of five for three, so maybe he didn't have particularly. Typically, a pretty middle of the road three point shooter, but for anybody in that starting the lineup, he he had a clean look as, as anything you could have top yes. of the key. If you ever had a shot more wide open for any player, you probably wanted top of the key for thirty. Like, uh, uh, well, if they can shoot a three, it's Lawson can shoot a three. 
So certainly I thought that was good. I was very upset with Bob Ritchie. <laughs> and, and I know you know this, but he didn't start Alec Hunter in the second half, so I'm going to boycott Bob Ritchie. I don't, know, I don't know what Alec did, Alex did, but I'm going to, I'm, you know, he's off my Christmas card list. I don't know. I mean, you can't touch Alex Hunter. That's my guy. I don't know what you're doing. You know, I'm a huge fan of Alex Hunter. There you go. There you go. It's just, it's, it's no doubt. So a Furman fan told me, and I, at the time I, I kind of agreed with it. He said, and again, it was hard to agree with because ETSU lost five in a row. He came to me and he said, hey, I'll tell you what. I think ETSU will beat Furman tonight and it'll be a two-game slide and then Furman won't lose another game the rest of the season. Now, he had me at um, ETSU win tonight. And I thought, well, ETSU desperately needs to pick up a win tonight, and we'll see how that goes. But Furman, two games in a row after Ro- – and, again, I want to use the analogy of what we saw in DeSante Bradford's senior year where, you know, they won all those games in the middle of the year. They were hot, right, 16 in a row. And then all of a sudden, boom, they lost three and just kind of lost the mojo right before – they peaked too early, right? Do we think Furman – and I pose this to Mike. Do you think they peaked a little bit early and got things rocking and rolling that that is hard to sustain, and now they may go through a little lumps, but they've still got time to figure it out. ETSU kind of limped to the finish line and had to get right for the tournament and did manage to win against the championship game, but just really got – I think only had 42 points in that championship game against UNCG, just not a banner day uh, offensively. Maybe it was 47. Anyway, it was under 50, and it wasn't good. Do you think Furman – because they were rocking and rolling and cooking as hot as anybody in the league. And then UNCG at Furman. Again, it wasn't at Timmons. I have no idea. And I realize the AD comes from Villanova, and you want to play downtown arena. It makes more people pay attention. But you play in Timmons, I don't think they lose to UNCG. They lose to UNCG. They lose this back-to-back games. Is the mojo gone for the Furman? Did they peak too early? I feel like you want me to say what I'm going to say. It feels like a setup. Don't they always peak too early? Postseason comes around, they never get anything done. I mean, that, are you setting me that, up for this? I think no, this is no, perfect. That's no, not what you intended. Oh, no, I, mean, no, I wanted your honest okay, answer. I mean, I, 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 what am I supposed to say? Like, yes, Bob Ritchie never wins the postseason. Furman never wins the postseason with their head coach. I, I don't know. I mean, do I think they peak too early? Um, this is a style of basketball that is a lot of fun, dangerous offensively, but that is very difficult to sustain three days in a row. Once the postseason comes around, that is difficult to sustain, I'd say, for more than six, seven, eight games in a row and have the level of success that they did in the middle of the regular season because shots just eventually stop going down. You can have the greatest shooters in the country, and Furman has often had many of the greatest shooters, certainly at the mid-major level, but it just doesn't work sustainably, and we've seen it over and over and over, especially when you're only really playing five or six guys big minutes, right? There's not depth. We know that. They have some excellent top-end players every year, and credit to Bob Ritchie and Furman this year because I did not believe they did this year. And now you might have the player of the year in Jalen Slauson. We knew Alex Hunter. We knew Mike Bothwell. Conley Garrison, I was skeptical of at best. Marcus Foster last night played really well. Garrett Keene, I know it hasn't necessarily worked on a game-by-game basis, but he puts together some nice minutes at times until they are able to prove me wrong in the postseason. Yeah, I think they peak too early because peaking too early is at any point in the regular season because they've had no success in the postseason. That's the real answer. So if you look at conference action, they have nine players averaging double figures, but you look at tight games like last night, six players played double-digit minutes. Yes, they played nine, but five minutes, five minutes, seven minutes for the other three players. Now that is a little bit of a breather. It's going to be the same problem for ETSU. Right now, ETSU has gone to a six-man rotation with a smattering of Charlie Weber occasionally. And, and let's so look at ETSU is going to be the same. Let's one. look at Furman's other three, too. I mean, five, five, seven minutes, 0 for 2 from the floor with no points. I'm talking about those players that are going to get in there and play that style of play and right. mix it up but and shoot the, the threes argument and have is, the – my, no, 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 no. my argument is definitely you need more than – five or six contributors that can do it. You need seven or eight because guys are going to have on days. Furman fans have been letting me know, and, and not just my good buddy. That's their argument. Not, not just my good buddy, doc, the doctor, who I love. But it's the fact that they're, hey, 
You know, Furman's got depth this year. They're playing nine guys. I'm like, I'm like, but they're they're winning by 25 or 30. It, it's smart. You're getting your starters off the floor. But in tight games, like when Chattanooga rolls around this next game, and I'll say this, Furman beats Chat at Timmins. They got a chance to roll and get going again because basically they only play Wofford, who they just slapped um, on the road, right? They won at Wofford by 25 or whatever. So you look at if they can get Chat at home, they got at Western. All right, you count that as a win, I'm assuming. No offense to Cole or whatever his name is. Then um, Wofford at home, which they've beaten like a drum, and that's going to be played at the Bon Secure Center, which, again, I think is a mistake unless you play Timmins. Then they're at Sanford at Citadel. They got a chance to win five in a row and get right back in. They also, you could see if they lose a check game, it's three in a row. Well, they could still go three and two. Let's say maybe Wofford repaid the loss at three and two. They're still going to be the two seed going into it. And then what do they do from there? I guess my thing is looking at the check game on Wednesday or Saturday. When we look at that box score at Furman, if it's a tight game, did they get nine guys? Did did the other Three guys, the seven, eight, nine. Did they play double digits? They haven't scored. Did they do anything discernible, positive on the floor at all? That's That's not depth. That is not depth. When you say depth, you have to have guys that can come in and put up a double-digit scoring night here and there that can carry the load when a Jalen Slauson or an Alex Hunter or a Mike Bothwell is off. Don't look at that box score. No, no, that's depth. Well, no, again, it backs up. In the first meeting with Chet, they had five guys play 30 minutes, one play 11. Six, nine, eight, and they combined for six points. <laughs> Depth. On 0 for, no, 2 for, what is that, 5, 2 for 5 shooting. And a total of four rebounds. Laughable. That's not depth. I will say this, though. I am very convinced Furman is going to win Saturday. We can talk about more on Ooh, Thursday or whatever. I like I'm it. very convinced Furman is going to win Saturday. And Sylvia DeSosa is supposed to be back then. Again, probably a conversation Listen, for a later date, but I think the Furman's winning that game. You had me at Chattanooga loses. You could have talked about that for an hour, and I would listen to you. Okay, what's up, Todd, for a timeout? We'll talk each other women's basketball. The SoCon people. So, Furman fans, if you're mad at us, you're going to be a guaranteed win for Mike Gallagher on Saturday. Just guaranteed. Like the third segment. Right now, second segment, each issue women's basketball. Santa Saki on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Luxuriously designed. Exquisitely detailed. First in its class. Corner to corner, a true work of art. Capable of going from zero to $300,000 in a few seconds flat. Are we talking about a sports car? Oh, no. We're talking about Jumbo Bucks Premium Edition Instant Games from the Tennessee Lottery. So test drive the new gold standard in instant tickets today. The Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. And the sidekick talking a little ETSU women's basketball. And uh, last night they finished that, uh, not quite a home and home because they played Sanford, Mercer at Sanford. So they had a game in between. But uh, boys, a whirlwind kind of week. ETSU went on a run against the women's Sanford Bulldogs and really, I thought, proved that the uh, last year 8 1 upset wasn't much of a fluke with a really, a, I thought, a, a drubbing. I know it. Uh, Seemed a little closer by seven, but, man, ETSU just really shot the lights out of it. Uh, and, really, you look at 14 points from Griff coming off to Maya Griffin. She had the 17, then the 14, then 12 points for Courtney Moore. You look at Carly Hooks, then eight rebounds for Ja'Kai Davis. How about that? 15 minutes, eight points, ten rebounds. Pretty efficient for Ja'Kia Davis in the minutes that she got. And then I watch Mercer, and my goodness, they did not miss a shot. Then I see Griffin uh, bump knees or whatever that was. We're watching the video, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, if she's out. But it was a clinic put on by Mercer on offense. And then, of course, last night, I'm following live stats, and I'm not going back and watch the game yet, but it looked like Sanford able to get a little bit of retribution for ETSU for what they were able to do 
uh, just what was that five days prior. Well, Carly Coons is a good coach, and you knew she wouldn't take too kindly to ETSU upsetting what were nearly double-digit favorites, if you keep track of that stuff. When Sanford came to Johnson City just five days earlier, and then you have the Bucks, as you said, really not miss a shot. Uh, everything was going down. They scored their most points in a quarter in the fourth against Sanford. Um, on Thursday, they scored their most points in a game this season with 76, and quite frankly, it looked a lot like that game against Sanford in the 8-1 Southern Conference quarterfinals just, you know, 11 months ago. Like, at no point did I ever think that Sanford was the better team in either of those games. It, it was truly incredible because, obviously, look at the results of last season. Sanford, uh, juggernaut, two-time regular season champion, getting that second regular season championship last year, and come in, house of fire, right? Well, ETSU had won just four games, and then boom, out of nowhere, Bucks seemed to flip the script, and they get the victory and end Sanford's chances of SoCon postseason title. This year, things aren't going nearly as well for the Bulldogs, whether it's something behind the scenes or what it may be. They have pretty much all of their contributors back. They've added Shantae Battle back again after she was out with injury most of last year. And so I was surprised to see them on Thursday look kind of rough. You know, Natalie Armstrong, any athleticism that she had does not appear to be showing up this year. Uh, Annie Ramil, who was the SoCon's leading rebounder last year, still can rebound, but she's Cut her offensive production in half. Cornoyer looked like really the only one that could do much of anything offensively. Uh, but the box looked fantastic, uh, without, a, without a doubt. And so you knew yesterday that Carly Coons would have Sanford dialed in and not a shot to see them score 33 of the first 44 points. And give the Bucks credit. They could have folded. They didn't have Demaya Griffin. She did not play. She is expected back either this coming Saturday or next week. I guess it's not a serious injury, which is great to hear because it was some hard knee-on-knee contact when we looked at that replay. Um, without her, it was going to be an uphill climb because she has shown to be, I think, the most dangerous offensive threat consistently on the CTSU team. But they put up 61. That's just the fifth time they've scored 60 or more points this season. Now, were they ever really in the game against Sanford yesterday? Not really because it was a double-digit lead at the end of the first and they got it down to single digits just one time for about 30 seconds throughout the rest of the game, and again, it was 33-11. But they hung in, and they showed some fight, and that's what you have to appreciate about Simon Harris' squad is that they make it a 12-point game at the end, and there were a number of instances where it could have been curtains early, but they didn't allow it to be. Well, I think the one thing you looked at the first matchup, almost all the shots for ETSU came at the free throw line or corners in the first matchup, and it, it was a crazy... Shot sheet. I worked the game with uh, D'Amico Childress, and he talked about, you know, he wait, get zone, get to the middle, short corner, middle, short corner. For whatever reason, Carly Coons kept calling timeout and kept drawing up on a board, hey, we can't double cover the corner, or we can't double cover the person at the free throw line. Like, we may need to put one person on each, right? Like, that seems pretty simple, and she could not get her team to do that for whatever reason. And ETSU had a ton of jumpers from the free throw line and a ton of jumpers from the corner. Well, now, again, I didn't get to watch the game because – um, doing the ETSU Furman game. I will go back and watch it before ETSU plays again. But looking at the shot sheet, ETSU did not have that many corner shots. So either Sanford went man-to-man or was able to figure it out because you're looking at really just four shots from the corner. Now, there were still some shots from the free throw line in the first half, second half. They were able to get to the rim, ETSU. They had a lot of shots inside the arc, which is what you want, layups, right? And then they took eight or nine threes from the outside. But to me, I thought Carly Coons probably learned from the first game, hey, if we sit in this zone and let them go free throw line, short corner, or take free throw jumpers, we are going to struggle, and so we need to adjust. So I felt like she did a good job just against, again, the shot chart. She was able to do a good job to get that changed. That being said, I want to talk about a reserve who's a name you'll be familiar with, and Carly Hook. She has now gone five straight, right, in double figures and put up, uh, even against Mercer, she's gone double figures, five straight, and starting to really come at her own and figuring out how to get to the rim and get that mid-range jumper. She will take a three occasionally. She'll hit a three, but for the most part, she's figured out a way to get her points. Yeah, she has shown this season, when she's been able to be on the floor, that she can be that streak scorer. Right now, she hasn't been efficient a lot of the time, but you look at the last five, four of seven from the floor, seven of 16, five of 12, seven of 16, five of 11, She's shooting nearly 50% from the field over these last five games where she's been double figures. And she's not a new name to Buck fans. We know that. She was the leading scorer on the team last year. But there was always the question if 
she would be able to be a scorer that would be making the most of her touches and maximizing possessions, or if she would be a volume scorer. And at least recently, it's looked like she can be that efficient force for ETSU. She's only started you know, six times this year. They're using her as a spark plug off the bench, and it's working lately. So that is great to see. Demi Burdick I want to talk about because for five games there, before the last two, now she's had a couple of quieter games. They asked a bit more of her yesterday, and she had a tough time with Ramil and Armstrong. But before these last two, she was averaging 10 points and seven rebounds over the previous five games. And for someone that has never really shown to be a huge offensive threat or someone that quite honestly is going to go and get you, you know, seven or eight rebounds a game, I thought her awakening in in a Buccaneer uniform that we hadn't previously seen was really noteworthy and obviously has receded just a bit over the last couple. But, I mean, she has been huge when the Bucks have needed her without a Demaya Griffin, right? Or without Ja'Kai Davis when she was away attending to a family matter. Or when players were struggling that had missed a lot of time to get back into the rotation. Debbie Burdick really stepped up. Courtney Moore, when she does not score, it makes it really difficult offensively for the Bucks, specifically when they don't have someone like Demaya Griffin as they didn't yesterday. And Moore is someone that I think you and me kind of spotted pretty early on. Last year we did a stream. Remember, we couldn't do the fan event, so we did streams over at Brooks Gym and Freedom Hall. And right when you walked in the door, and I had seen her in practice, obviously, doing some sports information stuff for women's basketball. But right when you walked in the door, you looked at Courtney Moore and were like, wow, she can really glide around the court. She can really do some things on the offensive side. She can get to the hoop. She can shoot it. Like, this is a talented score. And I was like, yeah, she dropped 2,000 points in high school. And you're like, oh, yeah, I thought I saw something there. And it really hadn't manifested itself a lot until the last, uh, let's say, two months. But even more recently, right at the beginning of conference play, you know, last non-conference game, St. Bonaventure, 11 points, and she was kind of taking then on more of a point guard role, you know, right at the end of the non-conference and early part of conference season because some players were missing some time, and she was showing that she can distribute, you know, four assists, five assists, seven against Tennessee, and then you had three assists against St. Bonaventure, then six against Western Carolina in that victory. So, She's being asked a lot of this year, way more than last year when she missed a lot of time with a couple of head injuries. But when she can find herself offensively, and then you pair her with Demi Burdick on a good day, you know, Demaya Griffin when she's able to be on the floor, and you feel bad for her because she missed about seven weeks with a lower body injury and now has another. Um, the Bucks need three or four consistent offensive options. When she is one, when you have Demi Burdick, when you have um, obviously the prowess of Demaya Griffin, and then you team whoever that fourth might be, if it's Carly Hooks, this team offensively can really get some things going. Granted, it hasn't happened very consistently this year. I think seeing Burdick without the knee brace is life-changing for her. She looks more like the athlete they thought they were bringing in. You're right, Courtney Moore in spurts looks spectacular, and then sometimes it's just not her day. And the problem is, for a lot of ETSU women's basketball this year, they either can't seem to be clicking at the same time or the team can't get enough consistency amongst themselves to get enough points on the board. And then you feel bad because Demi Griffin started to come into her own, you know, 17 points, 14 points, and she plays seven minutes with your right, the knee-to-knee contact. Every time you think Courtney Moore, hey, double figure, shot's looking better, back-to-back games. Now Carly Hooks has put five in a row. Ja'Kaya Davis certainly in spurts shows that she can score. I just it's it just hard because they just can't seem to get enough going at the same time. And I wish you could sit there and go, well, so-and-so is averaging eight. But the problem is they go two points for a few games and then they have 18. Right. You know, you can't – it's not quite working out to where you're constantly – you know, and, and Coach Ezell used to say this, if you could just get your average, right? And I never really knew what she was talking about. I mean, it makes sense, but still it's hard to put, you know, a vision of what she's talking about. Now, looking at this team, even more so than last year's team, I get what she's saying with that. If you could just get to your average and then somebody do just a, one person does a little more and everybody gets to their average, well, now we're at 60 points and we got a chance to win some basketball games in the Southern Conference. But the problem is there's too many people just can't, like, again, Demi Burdick's been tremendous. So I'm not picking on her, but she went three for 11, you know. If you could get that. That out, or if you could get Courtney Moore not to have two points coming off a 14-point game, you know, can you get 
Ja'Kia Davis to give you close to double-figure rebounds and double-figure points, even if she plays 15, 20 minutes. That would be great. But it's just they haven't quite put it all together. Yeah, that's that inconsistency. I think that's what's been startling to me over the last couple of games that you and me have both been at. Of course, we are both working the men's game last night. But they made 11 threes against Sanford last Thursday. And I counted eight air balls on threes. And, like, you have no idea where the ball is going out of some of the hands of these bucks. And it was so confusing that you make only four against Mercer, you're like, okay, it's not your day. But, again, another four or five air balls and only four makes last night. A big key for this team is shooting from outside. And that may sound like a broken record for a lot of Buck fans because they've heard Simon Harris talking the system, wanting to get up and down and take a lot of threes and, you know, shooting the ball within a certain amount of seconds on the shot clock. Um, but what comes inherently with that system is a lot of threes. And we haven't talked about it much on the podcast in terms of the statistics when they do hit a lot of threes and do score. And granted, these things haven't happened very often, but they're 3-1 and one when shooting above 40% from the floor. 0-18 when they don't. 3-1 and one when making double-digit threes. 0-18 when they don't. And now they're 3-2 and two and scoring 60 or more points, 0-18 when they don't. Of course, last night, or I should say 0-17 when they don't. Of course, last night, 61, but they lost by 12. And yes, again, startling that they've only done those things four or five times this year, depending on the category with the system that they want to play. But it's a pretty simple formula. You have to hit your shots for this Simon Harris system to work. And, by the way, one stat I didn't come across until a couple of days ago, there are three highest assist totals of the season against Sanford, Western Carolina, and Cornell. There are three wins. So it is pretty incredible to see when this team is able to follow the blueprint, share the ball, hit the outside shot. Really good things happen. They win a lot of games. Right now they just don't have the consistent shooters, or as you mentioned, if we're talking about getting to your average, overall the consistency on the offensive end of the floor. I mean, Double-digit threes help, too, because many as they take have gotten, I think, four games. Three and one. Uh, yeah, so certainly that's a, another stat to look at as well. So that's our breakdown of ETSU women's basketball. They don't play again until uh, Saturday, right? The uh, Chattanooga. That's right. Chattanooga. Lady Mox. So, all right, we'll step out for a timeout. Look around the Southern Conference after this on Sandoz Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. The biggest stories the hard-hitting details, the in-depth investigative reporting you've been craving, all can be found at ESPN, The Athletic, and the Associated Press. Now here's someone not named Adrian Wojnarowski, Ian Rappaport, or Bruce Feldman. That's one of my favorites that we never have gotten to use. It's for when we were going to do news updates with like students back in studio, like, here's some headlines, and this is going to be a two-hour show, and there were a lot of things. We had a lot of ideas. We had a lot of ideas. From that era of Santos and the Sidekick as we were taking flight. But I figure for Southern Conference headlines, which is essentially what this is, that makes sense. Some kind of news bumper. I think they actually even have I thought they had a longer one where there was like a... Uh, like yeah, a I had the music. It kept playing. Yeah, which so was too. really That's great, right. but yeah, how unfortunate. Oh, well. Uh, Southern Conference notes. Firstly, Hayden Brown returns, and does he return with a vengeance? 35 points and 11 rebounds mm-hmm. in a win over Sanford. That win, by the way. 200 combined points over the weekend for Sanford and the Citadel. 107 to 93. The Bulldogs, that being from Charleston, at home with the victory. After Sanford actually entered the day, having won three in a row, favored in that contest. Hayden Brown said, no dice. I thought you were going to say Hayden Brown returned with longer shorts, but uh, that was not your idea. That's a pipe dream from you. Now. Okay. Well, he uh, certainly a difference maker. He threw, uh, what did you say, 35 and 11? Oh, my goodness. So, um, tough, tough dude to guard. Out of position, if you put a smaller guy on him, he just bull rushes you. You put a bigger guy on him, he just goes around you. And, oh, by the way, he can shoot some threes. So he's just one of those awkward hybrid players. And certainly Citadel uh, in a dogfight with a couple of teams um, trying to get out of that 7, 8, 9, 10 range. Got some work to do. 
I mean, even ETSU's got some work to do there. But uh, having him back certainly gives him, I think, a puncher's chance in more games than if he was not back. This is what I like to do in this segment is talk about the people that are in or out missing time because those are things that I don't think the average fan would come across on a regular basis. You're just looking at box score and saying, oh, wow, I mean, I can't believe that Citadel put up 107 points. Well, they are able to do that because they obviously had Brown back preseason player of the year. And how bad did ETSU need that one last night against Furman? They were actually behind the Citadel and Sanford going into that game in the conference standing. They were ninth. So now that they've picked up that victory, they are back ahead of both the uh, Bulldogs and the Bulldogs at 5-8, and eight, while Sanford and the Citadel rest at 4-7. and seven. Silvio DeSosa, we mentioned in segment one, but he misses both games last week and early this week, uh, or I should say in the last week or so. But Avery Diggs steps up with 21 points last night, his first 20-point game as a mock, and, of course, your guy delivers the day. Honestly, A.J. Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a guy. Wide, wide open. Malachi Smith. I don't know who was guarding him. Was it Jalen Johnson? But he almost put him like six feet deep on that drive that got Caldwell open. They had to collapse because I don't know where the ankles of the defender ended up, but they certainly were attached to his body after that crossover. And Caldwell from the corner for three. Well, and it was a one-point game. You had to collapse because no with Smith going to the hoop, right, you got to think it's a tough guy to stop. He's going to score. Would you rather give up a layup or a long shot? Now, A.J. Caldwell has proven to be down one and hit threes is his thing, and he Honestly, did it again. A.J. Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a game. My guy, A.J. Caldwell with the game winner. I believe it was one year ago Sunday that he hit the game winner against ETSU. And then you fast forward 366 days, and A.J. Caldwell does it again. Chattanooga 10-2, and 9-4 and four in the league are Furman after that loss last night. So a game and a half lead, and looked at some schedules earlier today. And you touched on it in segment one, but this conference, despite it being a game and a half lead now with five games to go for Furman, six to go for Chattanooga, still not over because you do have a Furman-Chattanooga matchup this coming Saturday, and then after that, Furman has a pretty soft schedule rest of the way. Yeah, I mean, other than Wofford, you're talking about they got Sanford, Citadel, and Western, right? I think they got the bottom three uh, teams, and then they, you got a middle-of-the-pack 500 Wofford team in which they throttled, and then they try to avenge a loss um, against Chattanooga, so they beat Chattanooga. You know you got to you got to race again. If Chattanooga gets that and they get the sweep, that's like having an extra game lead in the standings. It's all but over as far as the number one seed goes. And then honestly, depending on what VMI does this weekend, VMI can beat Mercer. VMI beats the Citadel. All of a sudden, there could be a shot for who's going to be that second seed between Furman and VMI, unless Furman beat them twice, which I'd have to go back and double check. And I believe. Furman still probably going to lock up the two seed. As I'll look that up to make sure that I'm not lying to people. Um, but this, nope, they did lose to VMI, so you have to go to the tiebreaker there at some point. Yep, so they split with VMI. So uh, yeah, now we got to do tiebreaker math later. We'll we'll figure out. But it does that puts VMI back in the saddle for where are they going to finish? They could finish second. Now Furman beats Chattanooga. They still got a shot at the one seed if Chattanooga wins that game. Chattanooga gets a tune-up game with Western, uh, and, and the reason why I, I kind of use quotes for tune-up game, Western has a three-game win streak at Chattanooga. Do you see the Catamounts making it four in a row? game in five days for Chattanooga. Do we see the Matt Ryan? Can we see the Matt Ryan again? Who would be Matt Ryan in this case? Matt Ledford, who almost blew the game last night for him on the scoop layup with 13 seconds left in overtime, up one, and then a wide-open Mercer on the other end. They go up 72-71, making A.J. Caldwell be the hero. I don't know who would be the guy that would do that. On this team, it doesn't seem like there is that guy, but Matt Ryan certainly was that guy. Well, if I could just, if nothing else, if I could just see Matt Ryan crying, talking about if they could lose to anybody, but Western would be great. And uh, Every time that gets posted from Western Carolina fans, it just makes me happy. So I was happy to see, and you'll hate this, but I was happy to see Avery Diggs finally – show off some of that potential that I touted him to have at the beginning of the year, like 6'11 and 255 from Central Florida. And he had done not a lot this season, mostly because Silvio DeSosa obviously being the force that he is, going to take a lot of those minutes. But without DeSosa, 21 points last night at 10 of 11 from the floor, that 21-point effort, a career high. And again, Chattanooga with a game-and-a-half lead. Neftali Alvarez. And I could not believe when I looked at the box score from Saturday, he returns to the lineup. A big surprise Considering the outlook seemed pretty grim as of a couple weeks ago, I talked about with you my conversation with Greg Gary, and he was like, well, I guess I need to go back to the doctor. I, I'm pre- 
receding like we're not going to have them the rest of the year. And boom, out of nowhere, a massive happening to me. Maybe not the regular season title race, but with their loss last night, obviously putting them to 500, really no shot to go and climb that high. But with him coming back three weeks before the postseason, to me that's enough time for him to get back into it, be 100%, get the feel again, and he's somebody that already has a tremendous basketball feel. And more importantly for everyone around him to readjust to him being back because he is, in my estimation, the top point guard in this league, unless I'm forgetting anyone off the top of my head, David Sloan would be right there with him. I'm going to punch you, Alex Hunter. You shut your mouth. Uh, I would take both mouth. Sloan and Nathalie Alvarez mouth. over Alex Hunter, but Alex Hunter is right there as well. 1A, 1B, 1C if we want to go. Sloan, I, I, in fairness, Sloan's playing as good as any point Absolutely. guard. Absolutely. And you know league. last that's, year I thought he should have been a whole league player. Let's not forget. Yeah, Who was on the Sloan fair. bandwagon first of the two of us? That's fair. So you've got those three, but I think Nathalie Alvarez at his best can elevate that team, as we saw last year in the postseason, to a championship contending level. Obviously, they're not going to do that in the regular season, but you have them back for three weeks. Team gels, never know in the postseason. Here's what's crazy. They're going to play. They already lost the two chaps. They're going to go. We talked about their brutal five-game stretch. They're going to play on the road at VMI. Certainly could be a loss. They're going to go to UNCG. Certainly could be a loss. If ETSU beats Sanford Saturday, that puts both Mercer and ETSU at 6-8. and eight. Wednesday down in Macon, and if ETSU wins, they have a de facto extra game lead. Besides one game in the standing, it's a two-game lead to get out of that seven-seed slot. Mercer doesn't care. Mercer seven last year. And they got championship. Right. So did Wofford two years ago. I'm just saying, for the Mercer Bears, who were sitting up there at third and looking pretty good, this was the stretch where I was like, you know, I like Coach Gary. He's my guy. But we got if they can survive this, that, that would be a great stretch. Now, if they can get a win – Certainly they could beat ETSU at home, but if they could get a win against VMI or against UNCG, I'm not even asking them to get both wins, but if they could get one of those wins and then get a win at home, that certainly solidifies themselves middle of the pack um, and maybe even uh, as high as a four seed as far as well, to beat VMI uh, and was able to beat ETSU, they'd be in a fight for basically the three seed. They've lost four or five and five and seven. This stretch that you talked about has gone the way that I think you envisioned it going. And then – with that stretch kind of ending after the Chattanooga games, you still do have to run into VMI, and it's impossible to play in Lexington, especially when the cadets show up. And it's a Thursday night. I'm curious. If you're going to play at VMI, you're going to play on a weeknight, and they get them on a Thursday. So the, the crowd may not be as ruckus. You know, Then you get UNCG on a Sunday. Is everybody ready to play on a Sunday? I mean, there could be some things there. Let's uh, talk one more thing, more of a breakdown. Breakdown. Because I look at UNCG. Speaking of UNCG, as we're talking about them and Mercer running into each other here in a few days, I just am so confused as to how they control the pace against, like, 90% of teams they come up up against. And that's an exaggeration, but they did it to Furman in a road upset last week. And this season they have won games 57-53 against North Carolina A&T, 55-48 against Coppin State. 60-58 60-58 to 58 against Green Bay, 54-51 to 51 against Vermont, 62-51 to 51 against UMBC, 58-54 to 54 against Wofford, 61-58 to 58 against Sanford, 58-56 to 56 against Furman, and they've had a pair of overtime games that only got to the low 70s. And then two losses where the winner, Mercer and Furman those nights, scored 58. And last night they beat Western Carolina 68-49. to 49. Twelve of their games have been below 120 combined points. And if you look at some of the advanced metrics, They are 344th in the country in possessions per game. Wofford is actually below them at 346th of 358 in Division I. But if you use Ken Pomeroy's adjusted tempo stat, which factors... Why would you not? Why would you not? Wofford is well above UNCG. The Spartans dropped to 346 while Wofford moves up significantly. I don't know what magical serum they give opponents pregame where they're able to just dictate how the pace is going to be. But it is quite impressive, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. Mike Jones' first season down in Greensboro is going a lot better than I would have anticipated, and he's doing it in a way that I didn't expect to work in the Southern Conference to the level that it is with the talent that he has. Does that make sense? I still want to hear who every time you say Mike Jones, but I figure it gets old after a while. It does. But yes, it does make sense. And the one game that was the outlier was the no-defense ETSU game, which, right. uh, you know, 80-76, to 76, gave it up and down. I, the amazing part was I thought for sure – they were going to get to 70 on Furman, 
and they got that 15-point lead and had like 55 points, and Pack then they in. went six and a half minutes Pack it in. without a point. Missed field goals, missed one-and-ones, just two free throws. I mean, just found ways not to score, and then was able to get enough, you know, Furman comes roaring back, then I think Bothwell fouled out, and, you know, they hit a couple free throws late, basically, to go 58-56, and I think Garrett Heen had a, a, a big three in that one to give him, uh, Furman the one-point lead before Greensboro come all the way back and picked up the win, but I thought for sure that game, hey, they're going to get to 70, it's going to be whatever, and then they found a way to not get to, it's almost like the running joke, I think if you could get to 70, of course, ETSU didn't lose, so maybe, maybe it was because ETSU can't stop anybody from shooting 50 or 60% in the second half of the last six games that everyone can score. But other than that, Furman just takes the air out of the ball. They really defend, and they muck it up enough to where they keep it close. I don't think Mike Jones is going to play that way his whole time at UNCG. I think he's playing to what he thinks he has. And, and, he so has got them to, and he's got them to buy in because they play hard. You know, they're not particularly gifted on the offensive end. If you kind of slow down Buckingham for the most part, that's that's about it. But, man, those guys play hard. They defend. They really get after the 50-50 balls. Furman got back in it really by full-court pressing. I was shocked that UNCG struggled um, with the press as much as they did. And then it didn't shock me that they went through a little bit of a scoring drought, but it was really how the scoring drought happened the last six minutes. During the pregame show uh, for ETSU Wofford Saturday, I mean, I had the game on and just kept glancing over and seeing Furman cut in the lead. And it looked like every time I looked over, it was either Furman getting the steal or UNCG missing a shot. So I think UNCG is one of those teams that's hard to figure out. And I'll say this, because of that style of play, and you get in the tournament where there tends to be less fouls called, it's going to be very difficult for a team that is not used to playing UNCG style no of question. play. And not being tough is going to – they're going to be a hard out. I think in the Southern Conference Army. They strike me, and I said this earlier today to Kevin Brown off air, they strike me as a semifinal team that is going to take whoever they're playing right down to the wire and maybe knock them off. But if they don't lose, like, 62-59, 65-64, like, there is no way it's going to be easy. And, I mean, same with Wofford. Like we talked about, with the difference, I think, with UNCG and Wofford, and this is why I believe Wofford is the – better team, as much praise as I'm heaping upon UNCG, but Wofford doesn't beat themselves offensively. They never make the big mistake. Well, UNCG, I just don't think has the polish that Wofford does, the system, the, maybe it is the talent, um, but the continuity, and that's been built over time, obviously. Um, and Mike Jones is his first season at UNCG, so you can't expect that to hit the road right away, but very impressed with both those teams. Now, they're both 6-6. Six and six. I, I'm not saying they're going to go and win the Championship. I don't think that they are going to be able to put the ball in the basket enough to be able to go and do that. But I 100% agree with you. Come postseason, no one will want to see those teams because they just make you so uncomfortable. And you have to focus all 40 minutes to make sure that you're not upset there. I, yeah, and I think they've got a, a couple of games to really get some Ws on the board. They get Citadel at home. Then they get Mercer at home. Got Chattanooga. That's a game, you know, again, if they keep Chattanooga Closer than low, then they're at Sanford. That's a clash of styles. I mean, then they got Western Carolina. It'll be interesting with them. They got ETSU. I mean, they could really, I mean, they could really, really put a lot of distance in between the middle of the pack and rattle off a lot of wins. But in the same token, you could see them get to 50 points, lose 54-50, and not, and not have as many wins as you thought they could. This is, a, I think, a good stretch for UNCG to try to pick up some wins before they get to that chat. By the way, chat, you going uh, 2-0 or 0-2? Can't go either. For what? This week. Western Carolina Furman. I got him 0-2. What do you got? What do you got? You got Chat 0-2 against Western Carolina Furman. In fairness, I got them losing in their next five and lose, winning the last game. But that's probably a pipe dream. Pipe dream about Jay Sandoz. I'm excited okay. to see how the middle of the conference plays out with UNCG Wofford and Mercer because the standings right now are super interesting. It would have been more interesting last night if Chat Nuke would have lost and AJ Caldwell couldn't have saved them. But in the middle and even going down towards really the top seven, and you could even say if you're a Stanford or Citadel fan, the Bulldogs as well, there's a lot left to be decided. And we will break it. I'm six. That's not good.
once we get to next week, everyone will have about the same number of games played. So a lot of these half games, two games in between the standings will start to shake themselves out. We'll be able to break it down a little further. We'll be back with you Thursday, talking ETSU basketball and Southern Conference. Oh, my God!